0: Welcome to City, church. to City Church, uh, Long Beach
1: sermons. we are Visit in a sermon a series
0: going through the book of James, and today we are looking at a passage, sort of a classic passage for those who've been around church, um, about the connection between faith and works. I was thinking some about this, this passage and uh, and Paul's Lead, or James's lead in to this passage. And it's, uh, it, it reminded me of uh, when I first started dating my wife. This is back in a different century. Um, and I came out to California to visit her. We've been dating for a little while and to meet her family. And one of the things that I immediately noticed is that her family had this really awkward Uh, propensity to talk about things at family dinners that we didn't talk about growing up. They talked about bodily functions. I mean, all all the bodily functions were were available for discussion at the dinner table. In in my family, we didn't have bodily functions. I grew up in the South. Uh, It was reserved, respectful there were no such things as bodily functions they did not exist and so when when i met katie's family i was shocked i was like oh this is you know i sort of sat there awkwardly um, for for most of those conversations and it took a it took a couple of years really until i could chime in uh appropriately in the in the awkward conversations around bodily functions at the dinner table, about what came out of what orifice or, I mean, crazy stuff. I mean, it was just awkward. And now it just feels very normal and I've embraced sort of my own inner awkwardness, uh, as many of you know. Uh, And it makes me think about this passage in James, because James and the Bible at large talks a ton about money. And it's awkward. It's not what polite company discusses. It talks about the poor and the rich. And last week we talked about being exploited and things like mass incarceration that James hints at and how it's tied to money and privilege. And as we get into this classic Christian doctrine around faith and works which if you're new um, to the to this part of the spiritual journey in terms of understanding the Bible or reading it for the first time um, there's this tension between Christians talking about do we just have to believe God or do we have to do something James is going to unpack this, conversation but he does it entirely in the context of money because he wants to he wants us to talk about those who don't have as much and he wants us to think about in real ways what do we do in terms of our faith and our works with those those who are poor so it seemed like there might have been a um, heresy circling through the churches back in the first century that James was addressing that allowed Christians to opt out of caring for their neighbors. They could simply say a certain prayer and be saved, and then just go on with life as before, never changing such basic things as their calendar, their budget, their politics. And that's a heresy that James addresses head on in this passage. So I'd like to invite Haru Schaeffer. Haru, if you'd like to unmute and read our passage for us today from James 2.
1: All right, James 2, 14 to 24. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone But someone will say you have faith i have deeds show me your faith without deeds and i will show you my faith by my deeds you believe that there is one god good even the demons believe that and shudder you foolish person do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless
0: People of God, this is the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks, Haru.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. You know, as Bill talked about, uh, this passage is very much centered in specific issues around money, around those who have and who have not. Uh, as I start thinking about it, I, I I think I just have this natural tendency that I, I have a tendency to sort of broaden and find other links as well. And, and so, for me, I was just thinking about all the different ways that we tend to have have and have not um, in our culture, in our society. Just all the interlinking issues around power and privilege. So earlier this week, I was on a Zoom call with some other leaders from sister churches of ours. So some pastors and some elders, and uh, we were we were kind of working on a problem together, and. Uh, I was in conversation with one pastor in particular, but the conversation just really struck me because he was just really respectful as he was talking with me. I mean, it was just this really good conversation, back and forth. He had a few questions for me, things that we've been doing as a church that their church is thinking about doing. And so he's kind of trying to pick my brain a little bit, said, Oh, you know, maybe let's talk more later. Would love to learn from you and kind of where you've gone before this. And And this might not sound like that big of a deal to you, right? Because this is this is how people should behave, right? I mean, this is just that's just good normal behavior, right? So here's the background thing that I knew about this pastor, though, that made this interaction so just interesting to me. What I know about him is that he very much identifies he and his church as complementarian. And if you've been around church world at all, what that means is that he has a very um, firm ideas about how men and women should relate, uh, particularly in in the church world, uh, and that men should be in charge. Um, Not necessarily because they think men are better, but just the sense of that's how they read the Bible. They think that men should be in charge and that women should not be elders, for instance, and certainly not pastors. Okay, so knowing that, Can you see how funny this conversation was, right, where he and I were having this this really great, respectful, colleague-to-colleague conversation. I felt very, very much affirmed, respected, seen in my female pastor-ness, and yet I know that he does not really think I should be a pastor. It's so weird. People are weird. This is just strange. There's a lot of tension embedded in this. Okay, but now let's bring in another layer, which is that for so many of my friends, other women who are pastors, uh, what we will tell you is, while we have these sorts of conversations all the time, and it's, it's really a head trip and just a sort of like, how do we make sense of this? There's also the flip side of this kind of issue, which is 10 times more frustrating, which are all the people we know, particularly pastors who will say that they are Egalitarian. They are very much in favor of women being fully affirmed in every position of leadership in the church, just yay, you know, girl power. Um, these are the words that they speak. And yet, we often end up in conversations with them where we do not feel affirmed and we do not feel respected. We're in meetings and our ideas are just, they go unheard until they're repeated by another man in the room. Uh, And we're on staff in their churches and somehow just magically, all the men have the title of pastor and all the women have the title of director in their area of ministry. These egalitarian pastors, loud and proud, egalitarian pastors. um, Somehow it just happens that they always take the men out to lunch you know, and, and after work drinks and that kind of stuff where they kind of talk shop and make all the decisions in those casual sorts of way. And somehow we just aren't, this is my favorite story. Uh, a staff team I was once on, we decided to do a, a leadership kind of, you know, the leadership team was going to go have kind of a bonding experience by going and being part of a big conference that was happening in the area. It was going to be over the course of multiple days. And while it wasn't super far, you know, not far enough for getting a hotel room or anything like that, it was going to be a decent drive with traffic and stuff. So the one other woman on the team with me, she initiated to say like, hey, let's work out our carpool, you know, because there's going to be such horrendous traffic um, to, uh, to fight. And the pastor just, I mean, it, it, you could just tell it just, he was like, well, oh, actually, you know, I've already worked out a place to stay for, you know, the other guys on the team. Like we, we figured out somebody to stay with, you know, so we'll meet you down there. This was our, our bonding experience on this egalitarian staff team. Um, there's the weirdness when somebody acts in a way that we say, oh yeah, that's, that's awesome. And yet, and yet there's, okay, but they don't actually have the belief system that we would maybe like for them to have. But it's 10 times more frustrating when somebody says, this is what I believe. And then their actions do not match. Something inside of us wants words and actions to line up. We get so angry when people talk a good game and then they don't back it up. And that's what I see James pointing to here, particularly around the area of money. But there are so many places that we see this play out, right? Like I, you know, yes, I experience this um, in the area of my gender. I am on sort of the lack of privilege side of things, right? I experience, especially in my role and the fact that, you know, I'm part of a tradition that is so close to that evangelical church culture. Um, I admit there are so many ways that I also experience privilege in my life. And I have to, I have to stay aware of that. There are so many people I know who are so frustrated by the church's constant talk, for instance, about Well, now we say anti-racism, but for so many years, we have talked about reconciliation. We're a church that's committed to reconciliation. We're a church that's committed to multiculturalism. But have we backed it up with action? 10 times more frustrating. We care about our neighbors who are unhoused. care about the poor. But are we backing it up? Is there any evidence to show this is really what we care about? Jesus talked about it in terms of fruit. He said that we will, we know a tree by its fruit. A good tree has good fruit. A bad tree has bad fruit. Where is our fruit? Pastor Rich Viadas? says it this way, the troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without ever being deeply formed by Christ. This is the kind of mentality, the way of being that James is fighting against when in verse 18 he says, I will show you my faith by my deeds. You want to know what kind of tree I am? You want to know what I believe? it's just naturally going to flow out of me because that's, that's the way it works. It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I will show you what I believe by what I do. And it's this active expectation that somebody who really is deeply rooted in Jesus is going to live a life that's more and more Jesus-y, that's shaped by justice, by mercy, and really walking humbly with God. thanks Brenna. yeah
0: i mean i so i mean i just totally agree with what Brenna is saying here like your life it's got a it actually shows what you what you believe uh james goes on he he tells a story about abraham and And some people, um, even in the early church, would appeal to Abraham and say, well, he just believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a quote from the book of Genesis. That he was saved by his faith. He didn't have to do anything. And James is like, bull. That's bull. No. He actually lived it out. He was willing to sacrifice uh, even his son, you know, to to demonstrate that he believed and trusted in God. And James goes through that whole passage. and, and twice. Um, he he mentions this idea that faith by itself doesn't work. Um, so in, in 2.17, uh, it says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And then again in 2.24, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Which is kind of funny because, um, you know, our... <laughs> Theological tradition uh, has a saying, uh, sola fe by faith alone, that we're saved. That that's part of what it means to be in our theological tradition. And James specifically says that's not the case. <laughs> Sorry, I think there, there might be a couple of other reformed pastors on this call, or I'm probably got myself in trouble, but it's the Bible. The problem is the Bible right? It's just what Brenna said. Your life's got to show it. And it makes people crazy when you don't show it. And again, I want to, I mean, I think it's helpful for Brenna. She's kind of expanding this idea of privilege, um, which is exactly, I think, uh, the heart of Jesus here. I want to look back at this context where about rich and poor for a moment. Uh, there's a, a theologian named Gustavo Gutierrez. And he, he quotes this Bolivian farmer. And it just is so perfect. This is what he says. The Bolivian farmer says, an atheist is someone who fails to practice justice for the poor. How's that for a great definition of atheist? That's not typically how a lot of religious people define atheists. It's all about what people believe. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says, no, it it actually, um, it, it doesn't work that way. It's not just what you believe, it's what you do. Do you care for the poor? how do you spend your money? Each one of us, we can look at our checkbooks, at our credit card statements, at our debit card statements. We can look at our financial records and you will know what you value. Spend some time today. Take a look at how you spend your money. That's the fruit on the tree. That shows you your faith. That, it, it's, it's really clear. In James 2.22, uh, James says this. He's talking about Abraham, that his faith was made complete by what he did. And there's that word, right? One of my favorite words, telos, that I always talk about. But this idea of perfection, of wholeness, of fruitfulness, of uh, um, like a, a rose bush in full bloom. Faith by itself does not, it doesn't get you there. It, it's not real. It's what you do, and it's what you do with your time. It's what you do with your words. It's what you do with your actions. It's what you do specifically here in this passage with your money that shows what you actually believe. Do you believe that all people are created in God's image? Does your checkbook show that? super challenging, super awkward.
2: Yeah, it really is. And it really, for me, it brings up all sorts of questions, right? Where you say, okay, so if an atheist is one who doesn't care for the poor, who who fails to practice justice towards the poor, and a believer, that means a believer, one who believes in God is one who practices justice towards the poor. There are so many definitions, right? Where we, we love to divvy people up based on what they believe, but who truly is the egalitarian? Who is the worker towards anti-racism? Um, is it about the people who know all the buzzwords? The people who somehow, you know, have the correct orthodoxy of belief, whether we're talking about our faith or our politics, or is it the person who actually is living out a life that we can say, yes, yes, that is who we want to be. It feels like ideally, right, we would love for both pieces to match. That some of men who I have loved dearly, I have been, I felt poured into and respected who nevertheless claim complimentary and beliefs. Sometimes I'm just like, I just I just want to rename you. I think that would be disrespectful. But I think I think you actually are egalitarian. And I don't know why we why we can't match up on the definitions, but but ideally, we want it to match. And I think that is what James is pushing towards over and over again. He's saying, let's be consistent. Let's not be disintegrated pieces of a person. You know, I think this way, and I live this way, but can we integrate it? Can we bring it together, bring our whole self into harmony and into alignment? And it seems like he cares about it so much, he, he just keeps repeating himself over and over again. So in James 2.26, he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. We have this tendency, probably even more so, you know, 2,000 years later than James and, and with James's original audience, we have this tendency to treat ourselves as, um, to pit different parts of ourselves against each other, right? You know, that our mind and our body, our emotions, they can all be in conflict. Where James, like Jesus, really expects us to operate as integrated selves to say it, it all has to come together. We think about What's commonly known as the great commandment, uh, these words of Jesus, this, this sort of simple, easy to remember saying, say, this is what it means to live the spiritual life. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and then love your neighbor as yourself. All of yourself, all of those different pieces—not you know just kind of this piece over here, but you know then I'm also going to do this over here. But bring it all together; it all matters. How are we going to get there? You know, I think about uh, conversations I've had with a variety of people around anti-racist uh, anti-racism, but one that sticks out in particular, um, I was helping lead. Some conversations again among our sister churches, a, a group that we're part of there, and and an elder from a different church. He was really trying to engage the process, but you know, he was. It was difficult for him this whole this whole conversation. And so he and I were having kind of a one on one conversation about what made it so difficult for him to join in this anti racism conversation that we were having as churches, and and what it came down to. Um. What I took away is that basically he just, he didn't understand. He really felt just like, why do people insist on injecting so much emotion into these conversations? He was really bothered by how emotional it got and how I as a leader and other leaders insisted on creating real space for the emotional work of anti-racism conversations. And what he, he told me, and I actually wrote this down because it, it just grabbed me, um, was that what he was hoping is that as a community, we would be able to get to a place of impersonal, dispassionate, abstract conversation. That to him was the goal of all of our work together. And I remember just looking at him and saying, I don't agree with that goal. That is not my goal in this conversation because I don't think that we are disembodied heads. Uh, I I don't see that as being healthy for us as a community. And so what you're perceiving as weakness, I actually see as an invitation to you to come and to bring your full self into these conversations because you are more than just your mind. Uh, And if we're gonna get anywhere here, we're actually going to need to engage our full selves. Now here's what's interesting is that, I bet for a lot of us, that just felt really obvious. As soon as I I started describing the way he was talking to me, you're just like, that is not the goal. So often when we as a church have these conversations, we hear some things reflected afterwards um, that are actually, it's not because we're bad, it's just because this is how these things worked. how these things work. I've talked with other friends and other churches, other leaders in anti-racism and said, this is what I've experienced, is this normal? And they're like, yeah, that's totally normal. Is that we start having some of these conversations. We we start talking about anti-racism and afterwards, Bill and I might do some checking in with people. How was that for you? What was that like? And very often what we hear from those among us who are white is something to the effect of, well, you know, that was that was good, but I think we could have gone deeper. You know, I was hoping for a little bit more. I want a little bit more challenge there. You know like give me some more next time. And what we hear from our friends of color was, wow, that was a lot. That was really heavy. That was, man, I mean, my heart, my heart's really breaking a little bit after that. And, you know, I'm really glad we did it, but I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Because so often, those of us who are paler, we especially have been trained to enter these conversations just with our heads and not with our hearts. We're not feeling the depth of the emotion. and It seems like what James is saying As he pushes us towards integration, towards realizing that all of ourselves are going to have to come alive, are going to have to come into alignment with the ways of Jesus, we're going to have to start bringing our emotions into this conversation as well. And and for any of you who feel like you've been slapped down for that before, who you've gotten that sort of like, oh, if we could just be logical about all of this, I'm so sorry. You absolutely get to bring your whole self and all of your wounds, all of your emotions into this conversation. There's just a, there's a a quote I want to read that I feel like just summarizes this before I pass it back over to Bill. That's from a man named Daryl Ford, uh, writing an article called Forgiveness is Not Passivity in the Repentance Project. And he speaks to this integration of emotions and action. If white Christians truly felt the pain of Black Americans, when times of cruelty, injustice, injustice, and violence occur, immediate and contrived forgiveness rituals would never suffice. And Black Christians biblically forgive by viewing our legitimate hurts, frustrations, and anger through a redemptive lens that proclaims, "I will renounce my right to get revenge, for all the ways that this present kingdom has broken my heart. I will also believe Jesus' words that the kingdom of God is indeed at hand. This means I will pray with my heart and I will work tirelessly with my hands and feet to see signposts of how the perfectly restored kingdom invades the broken, exploitative, and racist kingdom of this world. It's with our whole selves that we're invited to love God and love our neighbors.
0: So good, yeah. Thanks, and Randy uh, Ramos. Thanks for your comment too. Um, I mean, because yeah, you know, what Bren is talking about is she's talking about me. She's talking about many of us. You know, how many times have I struggled to really engage these things wholeheartedly? Instead, it's just an idea. And James, he will not have it. He will not have it. This is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is integrative. Really appreciate that, uh, Brenna. Um, So here's this, this idea that it's that personally we're, we're called to integrate our whole selves on the, on the spiritual journey, right? Um, we're also called to do it in community. So there's, there's individual wholeness on the journey, but there's also communal wholeness because we need each other uh, to, to understand, to listen, to, to heal. And I want to circle back, um, in part, just because it's what God's been really speaking to me about a lot lately, and it just ties in so directly with James around trying to think about money in new ways, trying to uh, hear what God's saying to me and Katie about our finances, and it, and it really ties into the to the scripture passage today because the context. So I want to circle back around to this idea that as a community. what has often characterized uh, this idea of how we connect with people of different socioeconomic statuses is the idea of charity. And as Christians have done some thinking in in recent years, really playing out of, of course, the work of Jesus, there have been some great books that have come out, books like Toxic Charity. Books like When Helping Hurts. And what it is, is it's this idea that so many times charity is a way that those with privilege get to reinforce the structure, the economic structure that keeps people separated. If I can help you, I'm the good person and you're the person in need. And what would it look like to shift from charity to solidarity? Giving is always going to be um, the way of Jesus, but not giving from above or giving to check a box or to keep people at, at arm's length, but to actually work together with people, to be in the trenches together, to feel it together. Like the quote that Brenna read, particularly around black and white, some of those tensions. um, What if we integrate it better? We had some great picture of this um, last week we had, or two weeks ago, I guess we had some college students over that I'd never met from uh, one of those fancy East Coast colleges, and uh, they came for dinner in a socially distanced dinner in our backyard, and uh, and one of them was was really fascinated by Katie's work. You know, Katie works up on Skid Row, um, helping provide healthcare for for those who don't have it. And so this young woman asked her. She said, "Well, how do you how do you?" Do that? How do you sustain such challenging work, you know, after, you know, over over decades? Um, And Katie's response was just, it was great. You know, this is, this is, this is why one of the reasons why I married her, right? Because so she says, well, I suppose it'll sound strange to you, but it's actually where I find life. Spending time with those who have practical needs helps me see the reality of my own needs more clearly. And the people that I work amongst have incredible resilience and resourcefulness and genuine love. And so I experience God there. So that's how I keep going. It, it's not some idea of like, oh, I'm going to go help people. It's, I'm going to go participate with them in the kingdom of God. And that I myself am the beneficiary. In chapter 2, just before our section today, James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. You know, what if we moved, um, move closer, relationally closer um, to those who are in different socioeconomic statuses than we are. Um, I think, hold on, I've got a diagram here. Hold on one second. <laughs>
2: Because we know you all were waiting for the diagram.
0: (laughs) Sorry, did you cover for me, Brada? So you think about Jesus, right? So Jesus could have given charity, but he actually gave solidarity. Uh, You know, I've been reading this book with Nicole McIntosh on Mujerista Theology, which is feminist theology from a Latinx perspective. Um, and the author, she writes this. She says, it's my contention that solidarity, in the original sense of that word, must replace charity as the appropriate Christian behavior, as ethical behavior in our world today. That the idea is solidarity is is so much better, it's so much different. See, Jesus didn't just, God didn't give a handout. God God actually became flesh amongst us. God didn't keep a distance, didn't sort of visit by fiery chariot and drop off loaves of bread and fish. No, he was hungry out there in the Judean wilderness also. It's this idea that Jesus demonstrated solidarity with the poor. And so it's this idea that, that Jesus, you know, if, if, if power is in the, in the center of the circle. Where does Jesus go? He always spends times here at the margin. This is where Jesus spends his time. And we are invited to go find the margins as well. To go be with Jesus there, because that's where we'll meet him. And all of us have some, There are different areas where we have privilege and different areas where we have margins. And Jesus is always calling us out there.